This is Mike Matusi. I'm the founder of Contemporary Spirituality. Our mission is to connect wisdom teachers with sincere seekers. Today's wisdom teacher is Hollis Hanover. A little bit about Hollis. I've known Hollis for probably 30 years. Um, the first 20 years of that, 15 years of that, I knew him as a top-tier local uh, trial lawyer uh, doing most of his work when I knew him on the plaintiff side in personal injury litigation the last 15 or so years, more as one of the best local attorney mediators uh, that we have. He's a committed uh, family man. He's a committed man of faith, and he's just uh, just an all-around good person. As a trial lawyer, he was uh, I was always uh, keenly aware of my opponent and uh, Hollis was always a handful because he's passionate, because he's smart, because he's sincere, and he's personable, and judges and juries uh, love him. So he's especially difficult to be on the opposite side of. As a mediator, he is just routinely uh, requested by uh, both sides because of his skill set, and he's bright, and he's articulate, and he's a quick read. Um, and Hollis can correct me on the dates, but... I want to say he's been mediating cases locally for, I don't know, 15 years or so. Also, the person that uh, reintroduced me to Richard Rohr probably uh, 15 years ago, and I am uh, grateful for that. What you'll find out as we talk is he, uh, based on his history and credibility, he was selected by both sides to uh, mediate and make key decisions in uh, some of these priest pedophile uh, cases. And... Uh, um, we'll discuss those decisions uh, along the way. So with that said, good afternoon, Hollis. Good afternoon, Michael. I think it's a great thing you're doing here. I'm just thrilled every time I hear about stuff you're doing, and I fear that you've dropped me in among some heavy horsepower people here, but uh, I'll uh, do what I can. Well, your heavy horsepower, and uh, just to illustrate how long we've been working on it, our Zoom link went back to July, and it was <laughs> so dated we had to start again. So I uh, appreciate your, your patience with some um, uh, scheduling moves. But uh, just so folks can get better acquainted with you, many locally know you, but tell us a little bit about yourself growing up and uh, meeting Fran and, and so forth. I was born in 1938, which was before the World the World War II, and uh, there are a few of us left. And it, like everyone else at the time, uh, my family, uh, my parents, and, and my other relatives had come through the Depression and uh, were routinely poor and were... Uh, you know, kind of, uh, there was a general air of discouragement among those people because this society had let them down. Uh, starting in the late 20s, uh, the depression was crushing and men were leaving their families. And my grandfather, as a matter of fact, left his family uh, just because of the, uh, of the shame of not being able to support your family. So it was a, it was an odd time, but it, but you know, it was happy. Kids are generally happy, whatever they're doing. I was happy. We didn't, as I told you uh, one other time, 
my family was not particularly uh, overly religious. I think that they were, like almost all of us, uh, believers in a, in a higher power, but it wasn't expressed through church attendance. I think the first time I went to church was, or started uh, a formal relationship with the church was when I was in uh, junior high school. There was a, a church nearby called, uh, well, Central Christian Church. It was a member of the Disciples of Christ denomination. And I went there because that's where most of the attractive women went. <laughs> and they weren't women, they were girls at the time. But uh, sure. So that, that's the kind of religious motivation I had. Yes. Well, what changed? Or did it change? Oh, it changed. Of course it changed. I, uh, it, I went a long, long time with a sort of a... Uh, I, I remember a... Um, uh, movie called uh, that uh, Clarence Darrow's uh, Scopes trial was involved in. And in, in qualifying a juror, he said to the guy, what do you do? And the guy said, well, I'm a farmer. And he, and he said, uh, are you religious? He says, no, I leave that to my wife. Hmm. And I thought, you know, that's kind of my situation for a long time. I just left the religious thing to other people and carried on. I didn't have a yeah. wife though for a lot of the time. Well, but then you got, got married to the lovely Fran and and uh, bring us forward with that. Sure, sure. We were married in uh, when we were both 21 years old. It was 1959. And uh, uh, Fran was a nurse. I was uh, fumbling around trying to think of what I was going to do. I ended up going to law school. Fran and I had met in high school, but we really we didn't date until I was at uh, Kansas City University, and uh, she was in nurses training at St. Luke's. And we were married the year that she graduated nursing school, and my Friends in law school always uh, said that I attended law school on a medical scholarship because she worked all the time and I went to school, worked on the railroad and stuff like that. And our, and like a lot of young families, uh, we were not um, we were not really uh, addicted to any sort of religious experience. Mm-hmm. Well, at some point you got involved, I think, in the Catholic Church and then the uh, RICA program. Um, and if that's correct, kind of unpack that a little bit, the uh, your path along that route. Sure. Sure. Uh, Fran, my wife's uh, grandmother, came to this country from France, and she was a Catholic, although not a practicing variety of Catholic. But Fran always liked her grandmother a lot and, and uh, was uh, attracted to the Catholic Church. She once wanted to be a nun, and thankfully thankfully for me, she didn't get to do that because her grandmother told Fran's mother, do not let her do that. And so uh, that's a good thing my mother-in-law did for me. Yeah. Uh, we... Uh, 
the kids uh, got older, and so we got attached to a church, a Baptist church, Northern Baptist. And I didn't go very much, but a friend did, and the, and the kids went, and they were baptized. Uh, Fran in 1993 was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And uh, up until that time, I was just cruising, but that event was, uh, well, it was world changing for all of us. Mm-hmm. She's, she's well now, she's fine. Her, uh, her treatment involves surgery, and, but no post-surgical stuff, so. It worked out good, but at the but it just uh, made me think. Uh, around here, we joke about how Fran, in order in order to get me converted, Fran had to get cancer, and uh, so she she should take some credit for that. But it seemed to me to be kind of an excessive price for her to pay just for my changing. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, when that happened. Uh, I started being involved in the in the Baptist Church more, and, and we attended regularly. And I taught a Sunday school class, and it was it was just like that. But we had a we had a pastor who uh, was a we liked him a lot, but he decided to retire. And on learning of his retirement. Fran said, look, I've always wanted to be a Catholic. I think I'm going to join the Catholic Church, and you're welcome to come along if you want. And it turned out I wanted. I said, yeah, I go where you go. I was quo vadis around her. And uh, so we so we got involved in the Catholic Church. We went up, went to the RCIA program. We went to an Easter vigil before we had joined. And... and uh, it was a magic experience for me. I heard, I heard stuff that I had not heard before, and and uh, it was a great fit. Both of us agree that it's the best thing that ever happened to us. Mm. That was in that was in two thousand. Anything, any unique moments in that R R I C A program um, that stand out? Uh, you know, it was a good it was a good program, and it is. Uh, you'll your listeners will forgive me if I correct you. It's R C I A. The right of Christian right the wrong order. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you did. There you go. Right of Christian initiation of adults. There it is. And it was it was uh, we were active in that for gosh I don't know fifteen years something like that, but it was a it was a remarkable experience because. You're among these people that are at the top of their spiritual game. They're excited about joining the Catholic Church. It's not an easy thing to do, you know. It takes, uh, you know, it can take as little as four months uh, or as long as almost a year to to get through all this stuff. And it's not to say that you can't get in quick. There are there are shortcuts, but. The norm is to go through the RCIA, and people that are willing to do that are generally well motivated. Some of them are quite, quite frequently, some of them are just men who are 
who have decided because of their love for their fiance to, to join her church and go through a, a Catholic wedding mm. with, uh, with her and there, but, but they're all highly motivated, uh, spiritually motivated, spiritually curious. And it's just a good group of people to be around. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. And Hollis, what was your role there? What did, how did you participate in this RCIA program? Fran, Fran and I were just team members. The RCIA usually has a director who uh, coordinates and, and uh, carries the load on teaching. Uh, team members who do a little bit of teaching but are uh, available to give the uh, Catholic experience recitation to any of the mem- of the uh, applicants who want to talk to them. And, uh, and we also sponsored people of people who didn't have a connection uh, with the church uh, needed sponsors. And we, I guess I've sponsored uh, 10 or 12 people in the church and Fran has done a like number. And that's a, that's a great experience too. It's just, uh, that's fun. Yeah. Okay. So your journey um, kind of takes you to, cruising, as you say, then to the Baptist Church, then to the Catholic Church, and what I think anyone would call an involved parishioner. And then I think next you discover Richard Rohr, which would be many listeners will be familiar with, but uh, kind of a wisdom teacher that we routinely identify here and would be considered by most to be more on the progressive side. How did your journey take you there? You know, I honestly cannot remember when I first heard of Richard Rohr, I, or who was the or who the person was who told me about him. I got hooked onto him somehow, and I started reading some of his stuff, and and it was fascinating to me. It was such an upbeat. Uh, in my opinion, it, Richard stresses that the gospel is a joyful, joyful message. And and that <clears throat> that's a little bit different than what you hear from from many of the uh of the leaders of all kinds of faiths. They're, they're faiths. It's it's gloomy. It's my God, you've got to behave yourself or you're going to burn in hell for all eternity and and that's and I just didn't buy it. But but what he when he talks about the joy and about about the stages of life and uh, and the stuff that he does it, it was really thrilling to me. So so I bought into it. As a matter of fact, Fran and I were groupies for a long time. We we went to Albuquerque yearly and sometimes more than yearly to various retreats and. Uh, branched off a little bit from Roar into other retreats that uh, the Franciscans gave in various places. And so that was, a, that was, that was quite an experience. And it was a, it wrought some changes in how I thought about things. Yeah. You and I have spoken about the Sermon on the Mount. And I, and I think if I remember correctly, you've kind of become a student of that. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, I, for years, I don't do it anymore, but for years, I uh, every day I would read uh, read and think about one verse from uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount and, 
I call that chapters five, six, and seven of Matthew. <clears throat> and I was, uh, and it just slowly dawned on me that Jesus was not saying, here's a recipe for you to go to heaven. Jesus was saying, here is a recipe for you to enjoy life on earth to the extent you can. And his his objection to materialism, his hope that we would avoid grudges, uh, his thoughts that we should love one another, uh, that that kind of uh, gospel is is just a formula for enjoying this life that we've been given. It's and it and maybe I'm wrong. You know, I could be that could be heresy, but uh, it suits me just fine to think about to think about all these concepts from that standpoint. That's why they call the gospel the good news. And then because. If you suffer through this long enough, you're going to go to heaven, and then everything's going to be all right. It can be all right here. Mm. Key, it would is that then kind of the key Bible um, portion for you, or what? What if, if I were to ask you what portion of the Bible most speaks to you? Is it the Sermon on the Mount, or what? What would it be? Well, it's kind of a. It's kind of a. It's kind of a distillation. There's a Catholic principle that is urged in the Catholic Church and not very much in other denominations that I know about. When they talk about the characteristics of God, they say that God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. He knows everything. He is everywhere, and he can do anything he pleases. Uh, which even at that is kind of a limitation on God. We just can't think about God with our brains. And so that business about the Sermon on the Mount urging us to a happy life here on earth, plus the fact that God is indefinable and, and because of the, those three things that I just said about that are allegedly characteristics of the deity. Uh, you just needn't bother yourself about fretting and stewing about, am I pleasing God? Am I, am I doing something? Is there some trick that I don't know that if I don't get it right, things are going to go ill for me. That, that it doesn't work for anymore. I just don't think about that. I think, if I if I behave in a fashion that causes minimum harm to others, uh, and if I try my best to see other people as doing the best they can, then my life will be great. Mm. And if, in addition to that, uh, there's some other reward coming up, that isn't my business. It's God's business. Mm. And I can't tell you what a great a, a load li- is lifted off of, of me because it's on the horsepower level, the God that I have that I think about has infinite horsepower and, and has the ability to handle all the judgment passing that needs to be passed. Mm. 
I don't have to do any of that stuff. And that's a, that's a freeing thing. If you just think I really don't have to decide that somebody is a creep or a saint. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how freeing that would be. Are you, you're a young guy in your eighties. Are you about as content as you've ever been or where, where are you on the happiness, contentness, contentness quotient right now? It's it's an upward trend that's been going on for quite a while now, and it just gets better and better. And and that is uh, that may sound like a delusion, and it could well be. But subjectively, that's the way I look at it. I'm as happy as I've ever been. Uh, my wife and I are as, are as happy with each other as we have been, and uh, and life is good. And I'm, you know, life is good, and I say that under house arrest without an ankle bracelet during the plague. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I tell you, you know, I don't know how many of these interviews I've done now, but uh, I, I am routinely hearing that from these wisdom teachers who are on the journey and who have been on the journey for years and years that they're just, what they find is increased happiness, increased contentment, um, which uh, you obviously have found, which is wonderful. Um, if I may, I'd like to move to the uh, these uh, local priest pedophile cases and your involvement uh, there. I think you mediated a batch of, of maybe 47 cases back in 2008. Correct me to the extent I'm wrong, but just walk me through that first go-round uh, what your role was, how you got selected, and what you were asked to do, and what, what findings you made. Yeah, that first part was a, was a mediation. It was We were trying to get the cases settled. There were 47 plaintiffs. All but one of them were men, and they, and they had all been uh, molested to, to a, a greater or a lesser horrible degree when they were youths and uh, were, uh, you know, the children of of committed Catholics and involved in the church as altar boys. And otherwise, um, with the people, the church and the diocese and the plaintiffs wanted to settle the cases. And so they asked me to be a mediator. And, and just then at, who are not familiar with litigation understand, I mean, you have to have substantial credibility with both sides to get selected for that because it's it's by agreement, correct? Well, it's by agreement, and I don't know about the other part of it. I think uh, sometimes uh, mediators and arbitrators are selected as the uh, as the least objectionable alternative, but right, there has to be agreement on both sides. Yes. So what did you do? Well, they, I, I met with the people and uh, uh, we talked about it. They, generally speaking, we didn't meet with all of the all of the uh, victims at once, but we continued to uh, get worry about getting the thing done and, and ultimately came up with a gross sum settlement uh, of $10 million. But the, the problem that arose from that was that we, that we had to distribute the money 
the plaintiffs were all represented by one set of lawyers and the lawyers can't distribute money in that situation. They, and so the plaintiffs and the church agreed to change my status from a mediator to an arbitrator. So that my job was to figure out who should help people should get the money, which, you know, who gets how much. And so that was, uh, and, and I was happy to take the job. And then I was unhappy that I took the job, but, but uh, that was it. That was it. I've, I've told you about how that worked, haven't I? You did, but that was chapter one. And then you were pulled in again to, uh, and, and, your work then required you to make a subsequent uh, ruling or finding. Tell tell the listeners about that. Well, let me let me just let me just use up some of your people's time. In the first stage, the way I was supposed to decide about this, I talked with every one of the forty-seven people. We had a meet. We had a meeting. They came in and talked. The plaintiff's attorneys thought it was best that the diocese hear this stuff that they made sure they heard about. So there was a representative of the diocese there one time. It was the bishop. Sometimes it were some of the officials. But every but every day we'd talk with six or eight people until we got them all done, uh, and and they would tell about what happened to them, and that was an outrageously horrible experience. It was, uh, it, it, it affected me terribly. So we got through that and I spread the money around. And, and then five years later, uh, a priest was found to have, uh, have been uh, taking pictures of and sneaking looks at uh, the private parts of little little children, preschool children, uh, and uh, and so that generated a lawsuit that rose out of the fact that the case in 2008 was uh, in 2008 was decided with uh, a uh, an agreement that the church would behave itself in the future. So the, uh, the that priest was permitted to go for a while doing his his evil behavior, and uh, the plaintiffs thought that that constituted a uh, breach of that agreement, and that agreement had an arbitration clause in it, and so all of a sudden the people found it. I had been appointed an arbitrator, and so there I was already an arbitrator in this deal too. And so I had to, I had to decide what to do with that guy, and what to do with the diocese because of his behavior. What did you decide? Uh, you know, I uh, I decided that the, the diocese had breached the agreement. I had to decide it like, number one, did they breach the the agreement? Uh, Number two, was the breach sufficiently serious 
that that the plaintiffs could terminate the agreement if they wanted to. And number three, uh, how was how was the damage uh, reflected in the people? And number four, how much money should the people get? And that, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, here's what you wrote. Um, it was in the on the front page of the Kansas City Star. Hollis Hanover, the arbitrator, wrote in the court filing that he believed the diocese was and is constitutionally incapable of placing the preservation and protection of the clergy culture in a subordinate position to any other consideration, including the timely reporting of a priest involved in the use of diocesan children as pornographic models. Yeah, that didn't make me any buddies, I can tell you that. I'm thinking that didn't make you any buddies, but that was your finding, and you had heard yes. all the evidence. Right, right, right. That was it, and uh, they appealed it to the next court level, but um, that it stuck there, and after that, they, they just settled it. it. It was a remarkable experience because, really, there were plenty of people who thought that I should have just keep my mouth shut. Well, but, sure. You're practicing Catholic and very involved in your parish and, you know, an insider, so to speak. And by that, I just mean an involved parishioner. So, um, yeah, bold finding to make, but also a finding you made after interviewing 47 victims and, and then following the evidence of a, what happened thereafter. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm sure that didn't not make you. Uh, I'm sure you lost some uh, friends over the course of that. Well, actually, you know, nobody was overtly uh, overtly obnoxious to me, but but the people that that uh, mentioned it to me and and uh, spoke kindly about it, I think I think it was about fifty fifty. And, and I really understand that. I mean, you know, it's, how do you say, well, I understand that somebody uh, is, is objects to outing a priest for this kind of behavior. But, you know, there are people who worship at the church and there are people who worship the church. That, that, that doesn't make anybody bad because they worship the church. It's, it's just how their spirituality is expressed in their life. And that would seem like a direct attack on the church. And so I, I get it that people didn't like it very much. I didn't like it very much either. I understand it's a, a courageous finding and it, 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 it makes sense. You have to make a call in that circumstance or are the uh, victims going to uh, be given uh, first rate, so to speak, or is the clergy culture, and uh, you decided what you, what you decided. Um, moving to another subject, tell me what, what your journey is like now. I just got a book from you with a, uh, uh, from a, a Persian mystic, so you're, you're reading some interesting stuff now, Hafiz, I think, or Rumi or something, right? Yeah, Hafiz is his name. He's a 14th century Persian poet. I gave that book to a uh, couple of priests that I know and um, and they uh, they expressed enthusiasm about receiving it and then I haven't heard a word from either one of them 
Hey, hopefully I did better because I not only expressed enthusiasm, but I've read it and uh, I love it. It's just uh, it, in, enjoyable as can be. And the, uh, the, uh, I just, the sweetness and the intimacy of, of uh, his notion of God and his walk with God is, is just, just uh, a lovely. What, uh, what would you want people to know if, it, let's say this is the, the last interview you would ever do if you've got 20 years and you that won't happen but you know what i'm saying what would you want people to know what would his what is what is your journey taking you to so far in terms of what's really the essence of it all and most important well i don't know if i can say that in any concise fashion it's uh you know to me it it is just a, a dawning realization that may only be available through living a real long time and some people don't get to do that and the ones that are fortunate enough to do it uh, are lucky enough to see how this how it all works out how little some of the big things really are and how big some of the little things really are uh, just there's joy to be had uh, and and I understand, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy who's talking from a position of, of uh, comfort. I'm one of the guys that uh, Jesus said in uh, Luke, woe to you rich. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not rich, but I, but compared with the people in first century Palestine, I sure am. But uh, I, I don't think, uh, I think more likely than not, all Jesus was saying was, if you have the opportunity to love material stuff, you're going to miss out on something. And, and uh, so I'd say to anybody who wanted to listen that you should just try your best to seek joy where you can find it. Don't hurt anybody and and uh, do your best to get along. That's, there, isn't any, there isn't any magic formula that I've ever come up with, Mike. There are times when I sit and listen to to like Richard or or, or Don Farnan, there are times that I have these insights and I think, my God, that's marvelous. That's just marvelous. And then I forget it. (laughs) it, It's uh, speaking to some uh, part of me that doesn't, uh, that isn't in the retention business. Yeah. Um, you've got kids, you've got grandkids, you may have great grandkids at this point. Uh, and we're in a heated election and we're, we're in some pretty chaotic, divisive times. Uh, do you worry at all for future generations for your, for the world that we're leaving and creating for kids and grandkids? What, you, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, you know, I tend, I do my best to look away from some of the stuff that's happening now that I that I strongly disagree with. I don't, I don't like hearing about dividing people up. I don't, you know, I could do another, I could do another forty minutes about the stupidity of this whole situation with race. They, Race, in my opinion, was invent, was invented as a concept to permit 
Christians to avoid going to hell, but still have chattel ownership of other human beings. Yeah. But but look how it has poisoned us. I think it's going to get better. I think like uh, like Dr. King, uh, the arc of the history bends toward freedom. It bends toward humanity, and I and I think things will will get along. Will they'll be better? They'll be different. My God, in my lifetime, the things are. My parents uh, took us to California one time. It took five days in an old Studebaker, and then. Not long ago, I went to California, and it took three hours. So things things change. Things will happen. But it, but it is if you let if you let it ha- get to you, you can I can be distressed about what's going on now, and uh, hopefully it'll just it'll change for the better. I expect it to. I do too. I do too, and I like your uh, take on uh, the Martin Luther King quote about the. Uh, the arc of the universe bends towards more freedom or more justice or, or whatever it is. Outstanding. Enjoyed it very much, my friend. Thank you uh, for your time. And uh, always great to have time to visit with you. A listener um, listening to this podcast might want to follow up with you with a question or an inquiry. If they did, uh, is that okay? And if so, how would they contact you? Sure, sure, that's fine. I, my email address is hollishanover at gmail.com. And uh, I have no objection to people writing me. I might have an objection to writing back to them because of sloth, but I'll do my best to avoid that. <laughs> Very good. And you are not a man of sloth, so I, I do not anticipate that, that being an issue. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for what you do. You're welcome. Enjoyed it.